got your Bible handy, why don't you turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, get your Bible out, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, please let us have the privilege of helping you get one. We'd be happy to, as a church, to provide one for you, to help you learn about it. If you do have your Bible, get it handy and turn to Luke, the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, chapter 24. I want to read this morning as we begin the scripture that we're going to focus on this morning. Verse 13, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came, came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How unwise and slow you are! to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with him that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, Weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those with them gathered together who had said, The Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This morning, I have the feeling that whether you are a regular attender at Elm Grove or this is your first time or maybe it's been a while, that you and I, many of us here, need to have Jesus show up on our road today. We need him to show up, to astound us, to explain to us who he is. I'll tell you this, at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to give you the opportunity, if you need somebody just simply to pray for you over issues that you're facing in your life, big, small, or in between, important to you, important to someone else, whatever they may be, we're going to have, at the end of the service, a couple of our deacons who are going to be down here just to pray for you. In between now and, and then, I hope that you'll see and you'll hear Jesus show up on your road, and you'll understand a little bit more about him. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, that is indeed our prayer, 
that as these Emmaus disciples walked along their road, frustrated, discouraged, confused, not really knowing what was going on, that, Lord, you would meet us in the same circumstances today. Just as you appeared seemingly as a stranger to them, and yet, yet you are who you are, and you changed their lives, Lord, we pray that even if we don't necessarily recognize you at first this morning, that you would show up on our road and change our lives as well. Make us different, Lord, as individuals. Break our hearts this morning that we may pour them out to you and have you change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, in this story, is dealing with what one version of the Bible that I read this week calls thick-headed people. Thick-headed. I looked up thick-headed. A synonym is blockhead. And I immediately thought of Charlie Brown and Lucy. You blockhead. I... That's who he's dealing with, these folks who are a little slow, it seems, in understanding and picking up on what's going on. Now, of course, this morning, you're not sitting next to anyone you would call thick-headed, particularly if you've been married to them for some time. Not at all. Not at all, right? So don't elbow anybody. Call them uh, thick-headed. Say, hey, this is that person. You certainly don't live with anyone like that. Certainly, if you're a young person, not your parents. They're not thick-headed anyway. And certainly, parents, if you live with teenagers, they're not thick-headed in any way, so that you just don't bang heads together all the time. That kind of hurts, I'm sure. But a thick-headed person is who Jesus is dealing with. Two of them, as they walk on the road here, they, they, don't, they don't see really what's going on. They, they lack the sense to, to catch on to the hints that have been dropped all along. In this particular passage, we see Easter in the Lord's own words as he reveals something that we'll look at on the road to Emmaus. Our series that we're in, continuing even past Easter, you realize the Easter story doesn't end at Easter, which is great news. It continues on. Jesus is on the earth for several more days and then ascends into heaven. And we're going to follow that, that timeline all the way to the ascension. And we'll look this morning at another appearance to disciples on resurrection morning. Next week, we'll see when Jesus shows up and shows them proof, peace signs, as we'll call it. Peace be with you, he says, and shows them his hands and his feet and his side. Peace has been made with God. And we'll also see the Great Commission, how we are to live as a people who are sent by God into the world. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with a message called here, there, and everywhere. That's where we're sent. Not just here, not just there, but here, there, and everywhere. So this morning... Our goal is to get the Lord's perspective. What did he say to these disciples that we can learn from? Look back with me in verse 13. This is, it says, on the same day. This is the same day of the resurrection. Uh, the previous uh, verses there are talking about resurrection morning. So this is Sunday. Now the timeline, of course, if you know it, has been that Jesus a week or so prior had entered Jerusalem to cheers and people shouting and praising him. And the tide quickly turned against him as they questioned him about who he was, and he, of course, reiterated his claims to be God himself, to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the religious leaders, the religious police of the day were having nothing of it. They arrested him on a Thursday night, and on Friday morning after an unfair trial, they crucified him, and he died. And he was buried that afternoon, and Saturday, the day was spent with the disciples in grief and in mourning, perhaps thinking that was the end. And then Sunday came. As we saw last week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus and she found that he wasn't there and she spoke with the angels and eventually she spoke with Jesus and because he was alive, her life changed forever. And so it's on that same day, Jesus has already appeared to Mary 
and the disciples are aware that something is going on. And now on the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, these two disciples who have left Jerusalem, figuring it's all over, you can imagine, they came for the Passover, they had followed Jesus, and now they figure it's over, and they're leaving. Verse 14 says that they're discussing everything that had taken place. You can imagine the conversation. Verse 15 says that they're arguing about it. These two disciples are questioning, who is Jesus? Is he dead? Is he alive? Who in the world is he? You know that debate still rages today. That is the center of all our debates in our world. Just make no mistake about that. Everything that we have in our society that is debated comes down to one basic question, even though that may not be what people are talking about. It comes down to who is Jesus? Because if he is who he says he is, then the Bible is true and we answer to God. If he's not who he says he is, you know what Paul says? Paul says, you Christians who believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead, if it's not true, guess what he says? You didn't live just a good moral life, and, and okay, good for you. He says you're to be pitied above everybody. Why? Because you wasted your time. You should have lived it up. You should have had a great time on earth because that's all there is. The question always comes down, who is Jesus? And this conversation is just about that. They're debating, they're arguing, they're discussing it. Who is he? Maybe they, they were confused. Why is the tomb empty? What has happened? Did someone steal his body? Are the angels and, and, and those folks, are they just visions? Or is Mary and are the disciples truly right? It baffles them. The last thing they were expecting apparently was a resurrection. Verse 15, this stranger joins them. Jesus himself, we get in on this. You understand, they didn't know that. For whatever reason, their eyes were not able to recognize Jesus. We get the benefit of knowing this is Jesus walking. We're sort of looking over their shoulder, laughing at them. But imagine, you don't understand, you don't recognize. And he shows up, and he starts to walk along with them. And he says, what things have happened? They look discouraged. They think he's the one who's thick-headed. Are you the only one in Jerusalem? What, where, where have you been the last three days? You can imagine the city was in pandemonium, and everybody was talking about it. You've got the Jews on one side, the religious leaders on the other, and the Romans who are making everything happen. And Jesus shows up on the road, and he's just, hey, how are you guys? You guys doing all right? What's up? How's your weekend been? I hope it's good. Did you go to the synagogue? You know, what, what's happening? They look at him. You can imagine. They think, where, what rock did you just crawl out from under? Where have you been? Are you the only one, they say, in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And then he says, what do you mean? I just, I love it. Just picture Jesus there, just kind of walking along with them. And they're talking about him. He shows up. They don't recognize him for whatever reason. And, and, and he says, hey, what's going on? They said, don't you know? No, I don't. I have no idea. Tell me, please. It's interesting that they give an answer. They saw Jesus as a great prophet, this great leader, this spokesman for God. They, they thought that maybe he was more. Maybe, just maybe, he's the one, they thought. It says it there. We thought, we were hoping, verse 21, that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. They had, they had longed for this person to come. Israel had faced some major, major problems over the years. They'd failed the Lord so many times. God had punished them and brought them back, and they'd fail them again, and the cycle repeats itself. And now, they're under the Roman Empire who tolerated them, gave them some religious freedom, but honestly just made life miserable. They hated it. And they thought that maybe Jesus, they say, was the one. But the Jews, just, the Jews destroyed him. 
The power of God was seen in something special, but they say our religious leaders put him to death. They were hoping and praying that he was the one. Now, they've got several things right. You've got to give these disciples a little bit of credit. Jesus calls them thick-headed, but if we're in the same situation, we might be saying the same things. They knew that the Old Testament had foretold that the Messiah was coming. They knew that, that the Messiah would be the spokesman for God. They had some elements that were right, but they didn't put it all together. They had heard the empty tomb was there, but they just couldn't make sense of it. It's like a puzzle that they just couldn't fit together the right way. They thought that the cross was it, was the end. They thought that that was the end of the hope that came with Jesus. The good news is that we get to read and that they got to experience was that it wasn't the end. That this encounter with Jesus would change their minds. Here's what's revealed on this road to Emmaus. The Emmaus road reveals this. Here's Easter in the Lord's own words. Here's what he tells them as he explains the scriptures to them that Jesus is the story of the whole Bible. Jesus is the story of the whole Bible. You want to know what the Bible is about? It's about one person, Jesus. And so hold on just a second. Is Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament? Did, did, they, did, they, did they have Jesus there in the Old Testament? That's not the point. The whole story, write that down. Jesus is the, the whole story of the Bible. It's all about him. Jesus says to them, look, when, he, when they explain to him, here's, here's what's going on. We thought Jesus was this, he's a prophet, and so on and so forth. What does he say to them? Verse 25. How unwise and slow, that's an insult, by the way, you are to believe in your hearts that the prophets, all the prophets have spoken. You are a blockhead. Now you oh, Jesus wouldn't say that. Sure he did. You guys don't get it. Shake the cobwebs out, and let's figure this thing out. He says, how slow are you? He goes on to explain to them, why can't you put all the pieces together? Hello? We've only been talking about this for thousands of years in the Old Testament, and you guys can't figure this thing out? What they had seen were all the positives about this Messiah. He's going to do this for us and rescue us politically. He's going to reign and we're going to reign with him. You know what they missed? Maybe because they wanted to. Maybe because it hadn't been taught to them clearly. I'm not sure. They missed what we might call the darker or the negative side of Jesus' ministry. The fact that he would have to suffer and die. Now that's clear in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is telling them. He goes on, look at what he says. Didn't, didn't the Messiah, verse 26, have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? guys have missed it he says how do you not get this and then what does he do beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures Jesus leads a Bible study he led these guys imagine that they don't really know it's him but here's Jesus leading them in a Bible study about himself he starts with Moses that's the law and he runs all the way through the Old Testament, and he shows them in every portion of Scripture that they had. They only had the Old Testament at that point. That Jesus is the story of the whole Bible. He shows them everything concerning himself. He tells them how the law and the prophets and the history and the writings, how all of it fits together, how all of it points to him. And maybe he went and he showed them some of the previews. You know what? If you read it, you'll see here's a preview of the Messiah. If you read this about David, you'll see he's a prototype. He's a great king, but there's a greater king who's coming. If you read the prophecies, you'll see that they said Jesus would have to suffer. The Messiah would suffer in Isaiah, but he's going to be raised again. Maybe he took them and he showed them in every part of the Bible, the great themes of the Bible. Here's creation. God made it good. And then here's the fall of man. We messed it up. 
And yet here's God's plan for redemption, God's grace and His love, parallel with our sin and always overcome it. Maybe He showed them that ultimately all of that, the love of God, the sin of man, would have to combine together in the cross of Jesus Christ. He showed them that the Messiah must suffer and die. You can imagine him going and saying, Hey guys, do you remember what it says here? And then later on, do you see what this is talking about? He shows them how it all fit together. And so it's not the end of hope, but the beginning of hope. And that's what Jesus showed them. He said these things have to be this way. The Messiah had to suffer and die. So they don't see the end of God's hope. They see the beginning. Jesus here shows that he is the whole story of the Bible. So let me tell you this. The Bible is not a book of unconnected or disconnected stories. So don't read it that way. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist. Full disclosure here. Some of you now, you don't like me. I don't know. But I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist. One of the major problems that we have had is in our Sunday school, and I'm not talking about Elm Grove, I'm talking about Southern Baptist Sunday School, we have taught story, 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 story. All as silos, standing on their own, disconnected from each other. Do you realize that this story and this story and this story and this story are all part of one big story? Read the Bible that way and it will open your eyes. You won't see Noah as just the story of the flood. You won't see Moses as just the story of the Exodus or David as just the story of the great king of Israel. You won't see it that way. You'll see God working all along, God in control. One big story highlighted by individual episodes. So my encouragement to you is to read the Bible that way. It's not a, a book of disconnected or unconnected stories, not at all. The Bible is one big story of light over darkness. It's one big story of life over death, of grace over sin, of God over Satan. If you go back and Jesus says he begins here with the law and all the way through the prophets, you realize that the law, now some of you, I'll, just, I'll tell you this, I, I joke about this all the time, but it's true. Some of you began at the beginning of this year a Bible reading plan, and you're going to get through the Bible this year. And you turn the page and there was Leviticus. Leviticus. Can I just skip Leviticus? Really? Why in the world is Leviticus even in the Bible? What is the what does it mean? What is you realize it's part of the law and Leviticus just, you know, the great theme of Leviticus, just so you know, is how do you live with a holy God in your presence? They they needed to know because God was in their presence. They needed to know how to live with God in their presence. You realize that the, the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they what they point to is the fact that we have failed, that we have sinned. The law holds up God's standard. Here's perfection, according to God. And guess where we are? Somewhere way underneath all the rocks at the bottom. That's where we are. The law, as Jesus would show them, holds up the fact that we need God. We need a Savior. We cannot live up to God's standard on our own. So the next time you read Leviticus, maybe you get your reading plan going again. You say, all right, I'm motivated now. Getting through Leviticus. Understand God is showing them how far they have fallen, how, how far below God's standard they are, pointing to their ultimate need for the Messiah that He would send. They couldn't do it on their own. And God had to show them that. It's like the coach who has to break down the player and show him his flaws in order to help him understand, here's how now I can build you back up. The law shows our need for Jesus. The books of history, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, those books, they show how God is preparing His people for Jesus. You realize over and over, the nation of Israel consistently fails, consistently is unfaithful. Their rulers are ungodly and selfish. All that previews and is juxtaposed, if you will, set in contrast to the one who would come who would never fail. The one who would come and rule who would be perfect. Then you get to the poetic writings. You get to Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And you see a preview of our relationship with our Lord Jesus. The shepherd and his sheep. You see the emotion of the Psalms and how we get to pour our hearts out before the Lord. You see the wisdom of Proverbs that ultimately we'd be bound up in Jesus Christ. Then you get to the prophets. The major prophets, the minor prophets, those who wrote a lot, those who wrote a little. And you see that Israel has failed over and over and over, but they all promise that there is one coming who will never fail, who will restore the relationship between God and His people. The prophets will show that Jesus is indeed coming, that He is prophesied. You can imagine Jesus going through all of these parts of Scripture with these guys as He walks on the road. And let me tell you something, He didn't have to have a Bible handy because He wrote it. He's just off the top of his head. Let me tell you about Genesis and Exodus and where I am and all of these things. I came across something this week that I want to read to you. And it highlights the preview of Jesus in every book of the Old Testament. Listen to this. In Jesus, in Genesis rather, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the priest, the altar, and the lamb of sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman and our redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, Jesus is the one who comes to give a new start to his people. In Nehemiah, Jesus is our restorer, the rebuilder of our broken down lives. In Esther, he is our advocate. In Job, he is our hope in crushing circumstances. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our hope of resurrection. In the Song of Songs, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous one who has been wronged. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the one with the right to rule. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband forever married to the sinner. In Joel, he is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the restorer of justice. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, Jesus is the feet of the one who brings good news. In Nahum, Jesus is our stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is God my Savior. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is our cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is our humble king riding on a colt. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness. Imagine Jesus on the road to Emmaus, highlighting all those things. Do you see this, and do you see this, and do you see this? All of that, he would explain to them, was about him. 
Now, they didn't have the New Testament, but we have the great privilege of looking now at the New Testament to see what was written about Jesus after he came and after he died and after he rose again and after he had ascended. In Matthew, Jesus is God with us. In Mark, he is the Son of God dying for our sins. In Luke, he is the Son of Mary feeling what you feel. In John, he is the bread of life and living water. In Acts, Jesus is the Savior of the world and the foundation of the church. In Romans, Jesus is the righteousness of God and the one who makes us right with God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is the God of all comfort. In Galatians, he is your liberty. He sets you free. In Ephesians, Jesus is the God of unsearchable riches. In Philippians, Jesus is your joy, the one who meets all your needs. In Colossians, he is your completeness. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 1 Timothy, he is your faith. In 2 Timothy, Jesus is your stability. In Titus, Jesus is truth. In Philemon, he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's your perfection, the one who cleanses you from sin. In James, he's the power behind your faith. In 1 Peter, he is your example. In 2 Peter, Jesus is your purity. In 1 John, Jesus is your life. In 2 John, he is your pattern to follow. In 3 John, he is your motivation for following. In Jude, he is the fountain of your faith. And in Revelation, Jesus is your coming king. He is the story of the whole Bible. Imagine this Bible study as they walk along. And Jesus just goes through part by part by part. Did he read the whole Old Testament to them? Is Jesus in every single little word of the Old Testament? That's not the point. But in every part, it all points to him. It's all fulfilled in him. And then look what happens to them after they've had a Bible study with Jesus. Now, let me encourage you with this. If you have this week a Bible study with Jesus, and you say, Lord, I'm going to read your scripture, and I need you, just like you did, to interpret and explain it for me. I need your understanding. Let me tell you, you can experience the same things these disciples did. They get an increased desire for more time with him. Verses 28 and 29, they get to the village where they're going, and it looks as if he's going on. What do they say? Ho, 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 stay, stay with us. <laughs> we, we got a place for you to sleep tonight. Just stay here tonight. They try to reason with him. Look, it's late. Uh, the day's almost over. You don't need to go on anymore anyway. They want more time with him. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you'll want with him. There may be, let me tell you this, you may, you may have things mixed up. Is it chicken or the egg? Which comes first? I'm not sure in your life, but I'll tell you this. Spend time with Jesus, and you'll want more time with him. And you'll experience that with him. They also experience a closer relationship with him. It, it was, it says, as he reclined at the table with them. He has a meal with them. Now, in our, in our day today, we, this may not be as important, but, but they would sit there at the table, and that's where they would fellowship most. Sometimes we sit at the table, and we don't talk, and we just eat. We eat fast, or we eat on the go, and maybe mealtime is not as special as it was during this time, but this was a big deal. They were able to get closer to him after studying the scriptures with him, and you can too. The more you study the scriptures and spend time with Jesus, the closer you will get to him. That's the way God has designed it. They also gained a greater understanding of him. I love this. In verse 31, after he breaks the bread, he blesses and gives it to them, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They began to to understand him more. They, the scales are taken off, and they, they say, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. We've been walking with him this whole time. They, they grow in their faith and their understanding, and the same thing will happen to you. So well, I, don't, I don't understand the Bible. I don't know about Jesus. I, I haven't been in church very long. I don't think I understand. You know the path to doing that is to spend time with Jesus, period. 
It's not through church attendance. That's wonderful. I hope you're here each week. But let me tell you this. You can come to church each week and eat one meal a week, so to speak, and you will not grow. And your faith will not grow. And you will not understand Jesus that much more. But if you will fellowship with him each and every week, during the week, when you're at work, when you're at home, wherever you may be, you will grow in your understanding of him as you sit with him, as you listen to him. And that is the key. I hope you're here each week, and I'm going to try to preach to you as if this is the only sermon you'll ever hear. But if this is the only sermon that you ever hear, and you don't spend time with Jesus during the week, then you will starve spiritually, and you will not grow. That's simple truth. They also gain a clearer recognition of what Jesus was doing in their lives. They say to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze? Our hearts were on fire. They were burning. They, they knew, they looked back and they said, oh, I get it now. That's what was going on. Maybe you, as you spend time with the Lord, you're able to look back and say, you know what? I didn't understand it then what God was doing. But now I've walked with him a little further and it makes sense. He was stirring in me something that was going to happen later. He was preparing me for something. My heart was on fire as I walked with the Lord. They gain a clearer recognition of what he's doing. And then they also get a, a higher confidence in talking about him. Look what they do. They go back to Jerusalem. You know, you know what they told Jesus? Hey, the day is almost over. You ought to just stay here. What do they do? They go seven miles back to Jerusalem. Middle of the night. Now, it's not, you know, you realize that it's seven miles from the church driveway to the hospital, just so you know. If you ever have to drive that back and forth a few times, it's seven miles each way, 14 miles there and back. I know that pretty well by now. But I get in my car and I drive it. I don't walk it in the middle of the night, not usually. At least I haven't yet. These guys get up and they say, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about what's happened. They have a high confidence. You realize they're not confused anymore? They're not arguing anymore. They're not frustrated. They're not discouraged. They say, we've got to go talk to the disciples. We've got to tell everybody else. And that's what you get. The more you're with Jesus, the more he is on your lips. Your conversation is more about him. Jesus is alive, and they can't help but talk about him. Jesus is the story of the whole Bible. Now, why in the world does that matter to you? I, I, I hope that this week, that as we walk through these in just a second, that you'll take a portion of each of the parts of Scripture that I'll, that I'll point to and that you'll read looking forward to Jesus. If you're in the Old Testament, that you'll be looking forward. Okay, now how does this connect to the story that Jesus is going to show up and, and display to us in the New Testament? How does this writing in, in Genesis or, or in Isaiah or wherever you may be in Psalms, how does it point to, look forward to Jesus? Or if you're reading the Gospels, look at Jesus. Don't miss him in the Gospels, <laughs> if possible. Don't miss Jesus in the Gospels. Or, or maybe as you read Paul's letters, or you read, you read some of the other stuff, maybe that John or Peter wrote, then you look back to Jesus and you say, oh, okay, I see what they were looking at. Why does it matter that Jesus is the whole story of the Bible? First, because you can hope like the prophets you can hope like the prophets. Here's your encouragement. And I pray that you encourage yourself this week. There's so many folks who are needing hope. 
So many things in our world or maybe your world that seem hopeless, maybe it's your job or your marriage or your parenting or your money situation or your emotions, I'm not sure what it is for you, but maybe you say, I'm just hopeless. I don't know where to find it. Go to the prophets this week. You're going to see a very clear picture of where Israel went wrong, but you'll also see the hope that all the prophets have that there is one coming to make it right. And we look back on him. They look forward, so let's join them in hoping like they do, in counting on Jesus as the one who can make it all right, who has the power to make right the hopeless situations that you face. There is one and one alone. His name is Jesus. That's it. You can hope like the prophets. When you understand that Jesus is the story of the whole Bible, you're not just reading something over in Jeremiah and thinking, what in the world? You're saying, how does this point to Jesus? Where's the hope? And I see it, and I'm going to join with them. You can also follow like the disciples. And I say you can because Jesus alone can enable you to do this. You can hope like the prophets, and you can follow like the disciples. The first was encouraging. Here's your challenge. There are some here today who are not following very closely to Jesus. I don't say that to put guilt on you, but I say that because He wants you to follow very closely to Him and you are missing out on the blessings and the benefit and the wisdom and the encouragement that comes from walking closely with Him. And you may be, and maybe I need to kind of give you a little swift pastoral kick, you may be living in disobedience and that's why you're not following closely. And maybe this morning it's time to repent of that sin. And to say, Lord, I want to follow closely like the disciples. You realize that Jesus called them to abandon everything? That no matter what it was, they had to be willing to lay it down and to move forward with Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Throwing off anything that keeps me from following Jesus, you can follow like the disciples. You say, I can't have a relationship with the Lord like they had. Absolutely. You know why? Because they were human and so are you and Jesus is God. There is one constant. We're human. We need him. He's God. There you go. That hasn't changed. You can follow just like the disciples did. You say, I'm a knucklehead. They were too. You say, I struggle with my faith. They did too. You say, I mess up all the time. They did too. You say, there have been times when I act like Jesus isn't even there. They did too. They're human. They needed Jesus. So do you. So do I. You can follow like the disciples. Also, you can preach like the apostles. Hold on a second. Preach. Wait. We'll have open mic time for the next three hours, and you can all come and preach the sermon you've been waiting to preach for so long at Elm Grove. You get the same blank stares sometimes that I get. Good luck with that. You can preach like the apostles. What do I mean by that? You have a mission that God has given you. You realize that once they recognized that Jesus was alive, There was no backing down. In fact, Peter and John in the book of Acts say that we can't help but preach in this name. You know what they told them? Stop. Stop preaching. They beat them up, threw them in jail, and they said, we're not going to stop. He is alive, and we're going to be bold, and we're going to tell the story. 
And then later on, it was said that, that they amazed everybody because they didn't have the highest level of education. But they, it says, had been with Jesus. Do you realize that's all it takes? Ultimately, that's all that it takes. Now, I would encourage you, if the Lord calls you to go to some sort of formal education to get training, theological training, whatever it is, absolutely. If you're going to go into ministry, if the Lord has put a calling on your life to do that, I absolutely believe that it is 100% beneficial. And in some cases, you may need to, based upon knowledge or whatever, go to theological training, to seminary, wherever. But ultimately, none of that stuff matters if you've not been with Jesus. Because you're just talking. You're just giving a nice little lecture on the Scripture. So Sunday school teachers and leaders in our church and the pastor, have we been with Jesus? That's the question. Then we can preach like the apostles. You say, well, Peter preached, and in one day 3,000 people came to join the church. I've never had that happen to me. I'll just be honest with you. That's not, you know, there's not 3,000 folks here today. I've never had that happen to me. That can be very discouraging. Well, if I were really preaching like the apostles, I mean, good grief, there are 3,000 people. They just show up. If you build it, they will come. Just be like Field of Dreams. Here they come out of the cornfields. They just come from everywhere. You know, that can be discouraging, but let me tell you this. The point was not how many people got saved because there was no formula to what Peter, Peter was doing. The point was he had been with Jesus. He had seen Jesus alive, and he was bold. He wasn't going to back down. He stood on that truth. You can preach like the apostles. You have a mission from God this week with the people that you're around. And finally, you can celebrate like the angels. You fast forward in the New Testament, you get the book of Revelation. The angels stand around the throne of God constantly celebrating who He is. Holy, holy, holy. They never, ever stop. You say, well, one day when I get to heaven, I'll praise God. But until then, life is hard. I'll come to church, but you're not going to make me sing. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to celebrate. Now listen, let me tell you something. Life is hard. I'm not making a joke of that. It's hard. You have issues and things that you go through, but let me tell you, because, because Jesus is alive and the whole Bible points to him, when you read it and you read Revelation and you get to the parts where the angels are worshiping him, guess what? That's for you too, today. Not just when you get to heaven. Praise God, we'll do that forever there. But today you can celebrate like the angels. So maybe this week it's time for you just simply to praise God for who he is, for what he has done, for what he will do. Here's what I'd like to do as we close our time this morning. I've asked a couple of our deacons if they would. You guys, you can go ahead and make your way forward. Those couple of fellows I talked to. I've asked them just to come and to stand, and there may be no one who comes this morning, and let me tell you, that's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You won't hurt these guys either. They're a little intimidating, a little scary, but, <clears throat> but here's, here's what I want to give you the opportunity to do. Danny's going to play for just a few minutes. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes just so you can focus on what God has said to you this morning. But if you say, I need someone to pray with this morning, I need somebody to pray for me, because you might say, I want hope. I want to follow more closely to Jesus. I want to be on mission like those apostles where I want to live for something beyond myself. I want to celebrate with joy, just like the angels do. You say, well, would you pray for me? I'm not there yet, but that's where I want to be. I want Jesus. I want the story of the Bible. Maybe you say, you know what? I'm going to come and ask if someone would pray and help me. 
Eddie Clyde is over here, Keith is over here in just a moment. You may know them very well, you may not know them at all, but they're going to be available to you to pray for you. You can tell them as much or as little about what you're going through. You say, I just need hope, or I want to follow more closely, or I want to be on mission, or I want to celebrate. They'll pray for you. Take just a few moments. We won't embarrass you or call you out or ask you to stand up here and tell everybody your story. But I want to challenge you this morning, Elm Grove. But if God is calling you specifically to something and stirring your heart and Jesus has shown up on your road today, then I want to challenge you to get up out of your seat and say, look, would you pray for me? Get somebody to walk with you on that road. If you would, bow your heads. Let me pray for us. And then with our heads bowed and eyes closed so we're not trying to embarrass anyone, Daniel, play for a few moments. And you get up and you come down and talk to Eddie Clyde or to Keith and ask them to pray for you. Lord Jesus, give us boldness this morning. And give us humility to do business with you, to ask someone to pray for us, to ask for hope, to ask, Lord, that you would draw us to a closer following relationship with you, that you would set us on mission for something far beyond ourselves, that you would help us to celebrate with joy. I pray for those, Lord, who are scared to ask for prayer. Overcome all that, Lord Jesus, we pray. We thank you for your resurrection for showing up this morning on our road. We pray this in Jesus' name.